0: Welcome to episode 149 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and the personal case reviews of my former colleagues who served in the FBI. Today, once again, we get to speak to retired agent, bob herndon who served 28 years with the fbi i'm not going to recite his bio again because you got that in part one but i do want to remind you that in this episode bob herndon reviews an antitrust corporate fraud investigation involving archer daniels midland a global food processing corporation convicted of operating a price fixing scheme to steal millions of dollars from its customers Bob Herndon also discusses Mark Whitaker, his rogue cooperating witness who had a hidden agenda that nearly destroyed the careers of Herndon and his co-case agent, Brian Shepard. The case was the subject of the true crime thriller The Informant by Kirk Eichenwald and a feature film by the same name starring Matt Damon. What I really enjoyed about part one and especially part two of this episode is that it really shows you what it's like to be a special agent. That title is more than what we do. It is also who we are. And when that self image is threatened, it can be traumatic. Before we get to the interview, I wanna acknowledge again that I changed my introduction In 2019, I want to focus on my mission to support the FBI, and I want to make sure that my work has a social impact. The topic of my January monthly email to my reader team is a breakdown of how I plan to support the FBI this year. And I invite you to join my reader team to read my post on the topic. Also, when you join my reader team, you get the FBI Reading Resource, which is a colorful list of books about the FBI written by FBI agents who have appeared on this podcast. You also get the FBI Reality Checklist, which is a list of cliches and misconceptions about the FBI. And I also keep you up to date on the FBI in books, TV, and movies. To join my reader team, all you need to do is go to my website, JerryWilliams.com, J-E-R-R-I Williams.com, or if you're listening to this on a podcast app that supports links, you can join right in the description of this episode. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to invite back once again, Bob Herndon. Now, Bob, the last time we were talking, you had us in a Chinese restaurant and Mark Whitaker, your cooperating witness, had just told you that he may have been receiving some kickbacks from the company, and (laughs) you were kind of shocked about that. So why don't we start there and continue on with this case review?
1: Sure. Yes, we were very shocked. Whenever your cooperating witness, the man who's going to take the stand for the government says, oh, by the way, I've been working with you guys for two and a half years, and I've never told you this, but I've been taking money underneath the table from the company and it's cash money. Your antenna goes up. And so we started asking Mark lots of questions about this $500,000, two hours worth of questions, which eventually led to me asking Mark to give a signed statement. Remember when the case first started, Mark told us a whole host of lies. And I was concerned we're being told another lie. And sometimes in the FBI, if you get somebody to write something down, it's more likely to be the truth is is our experience. And and he was willing to write this down. He was willing to say, here's what's been going on. Here's how I'm doing it. And here's the amount, $500,000. And what Mark explained was one of a compensation plan that was off the books. During this time in corporate American history, shareholders were disgruntled about the salaries being paid to um, corporate executives. One thing I've learned in life, Jerry, is that the best lie is one that's closely aligned with the truth. And there were articles at that time that I read in the Wall Street Journal about what Mark was saying, that shareholders were upset with how much money executives were being paid. So Mark's told us that the company decided a way to get around this is to give money underneath the table to certain high level performers, such as Mark Whitaker. So we heard this and we were devastated. We knew this would instantly challenge his credibility. When we made tapes in the case, the tapes are not only gathering evidence of wrongdoing by others, but the tapes were also meant to rehabilitate our witness. Because again, this case was started on so many different lies We knew that credibility was an issue at at trial, and we wanted to be able to show the jury that at least on the matter of price fixing, Mark Whitaker can be considered to be credible because he was telling the truth in that matter. And now we we learn that he was doing something behind the scenes.
0: In part one, you were telling us about how you had just heard that there was an allegation that you and your co-case agent, Brian Shepard, might have been involved in. Now you're thinking that what he's confessing to you is has to do with that. I, I take it you're assuming that the defense attorneys believe that you were aware of this and that you let it happen. I mean,
1: right. That 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 was our thought. Is that we knew we were not involved, and, and so when we heard that baseless allegation that the agents may be indicted, well, once we heard Mark talk about this payments underneath the table, you know, we, of course, were not involved in that. We had no knowledge of it. We, we weren't partaking in it. So it really didn't cross our minds to, to dive deep into, you know, our involvement because you can't prove a negative. You know, we weren't, weren't involved in that activity. But our assumption was the, the defensive team must be assuming, since our source was doing it, that we knew about it. You have cooperation agreements with cooperating witnesses. And basically, those cooperation agreements read that the government is in charge, and the defense you know took a few steps of um, a leap of logic to say, "Well, since you were in charge of this man 's life, you therefore knew everything he was doing, which we certainly back in, in in that time period did not know everything that our cooperating witness was doing. That is not part of the protocol when someone comes to the FBI and says, "Hey, let me help you or or in this case where you know through a series of um, strange events we eventually got him to admit to a criminal activity that's going on you don't also investigate your cooperating witness you don't have the authority to in the sense of you don't have subpoena power uh, to look at bank accounts we did during the during the course of the case as you do in, in any case especially a case of this magnitude we would ask mark over and over about any skeletons he may have in the closet we would forecast to him that hey when this case goes public the defense team is going to do a scorch earth on you once they find out you're the cooperator and we told mark you know they will find out because in due course the government has to tell right before trial uh who the witnesses are and um, if there are tape recordings made they're they're going to find out that way and mark kept telling us over and over that basically he was a boy scout Um, we even got specific we got specific about if he had cheated on his wife or if he had used drugs we got all sorts of denials from Mark Whitaker. But here we are preparing for trial. The case has already um, gone public. We're no longer making tape recordings. And our number one witness is admitting to taking $500,000 behind the scenes. You wish. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> it probably does not surprise your your um, listeners to find out that what I just said is not 100% accurate. First of all, in, in regards to the scheme, There were two agents assigned from the Chicago Division to investigate that part of the case. In a minute, I'll I'll explain why they were assigned to do it. But let me just, as an overview, tell you that that they were involved in the case to to look at that part of the allegation, this $500,000 that was taken behind the scenes. And what was determined is that this was not a a company-wide crime, that this was a crime of one person, Mark Whitaker. It was an old-fashioned invoice fraud scheme, probably the most common form of embezzlement in corporations. Basically, Mark was simply making up phony invoices from phony vendors and charging, let's say, a million dollars or $2.5 million for services rendered or product provided to ADM. Mark was authorizing those invoices for payment, and the company was paying them to a post office box that Mark had set up. Or in some cases, or one case, they just gave Mark the check personally to deliver to the phony company. Just an old-fashioned invoice fraud scheme. I think your listeners will get a kick about how it started. Remember, Mark was a very young PhD, a very smart guy. Mark Whitaker fell victim to an old-fashioned Nigerian fraud scheme.
0: Oh, the good old Nigerian fraud scheme.
1: Yeah, you remember those?
0: Oh, absolutely. That was during my time.
1: (laughs) And and Mark got one of those letters in the mail. Back in those days, it was letters, not emails. And he got a letter claiming that that some guy there in Nigeria had access to billions of dollars but needed help paying the taxes. And Mark got hooked. And he started sending money. And then, of course, the, the person needed a little bit more money. And so Mark got some friends of his at work to invest. And finally, Mark realized it was all a scam. He had been scammed and to pay his friends back. Mark came up with this idea of the invoice fraud, and um, that's how it started.
0: And when was that? Was that before he began cooperating?
1: Yes. uh, Back in 1991, I think is when it first started. So it was before he, he was a cooperator. Unfortunately, it continued after he was cooperating with us. And I tell people, hey, if you're going to work with the FBI, um, at the same time, don't be committing a crime. Uh, That's not going to end up well. So the two agents from Chicago who were in charge of this um, invoice fraud scheme, an agent named Tony D'Angelo and an agent named Mike Bassett, they did an unbelievable job in a very difficult circumstance of collecting the evidence, conducting interviews, and even fighting their own fights with the Department of Justice. So let me add a little bit more to this to to give you a better context about what was going on.
0: Yeah, because I'm really curious because when you talk about collecting evidence, they're collecting the majority of the evidence from ADM, which is your... Target. Yeah, your target in, in your case. So, I mean, it's just unbelievable how this case turned
1: yeah, so so why do we have two agents from the Chicago Division, which is the rival division of the Springfield Division? The Springfield Division is one of the smallest divisions in the FBI. Of course, the Chicago is one of the largest. For years, there had been a turf battle between Chicago trying to take over Springfield and, and SACs battling it out. And, and here now we have the biggest case in the history of the Springfield Division having two agents from Chicago Kind of creep in and start working the case. How did that happen? Well, shortly after ADM discovered the invoice fraud, shortly thereafter, there appeared an anonymous note to the ADM attorneys. An anonymous note that said that agents Herndon and Shepard also took money. And and could it get any worse? Well, shortly thereafter, Mark Whitaker appeared on the cover of Fortune magazine. And it's never good when your cooperating witness is on the cover of a magazine before trial, and he detailed his life as a mole for the FBI. Uh, that's pretty bad. But within the article, he starts making all sorts of allegations against Brian Shepard and myself on the case.
0: Wow! And this is somebody that you've worked with for more than two and a half years, and considered again. I we shouldn't use the word friend, but somebody that you cared about and he has turned against you and was smearing you with all of these vicious and very damaging, not just career-wise, but criminal accusations. Uh, How did you feel about that? I mean...
1: Yeah, well, I I felt sick about it. I felt embarrassed about it. I felt angry and mad. But a lot of my frustration was more with my own people. You see, when the anonymous note appeared the Department of Justice fraud section was livid. The fraud section was given the task of investigating the embezzlement of $500,000 by Mark Whitaker. Those prosecutors were very aggressive in their opinions about the Springfield Division and about myself and Brian Shepherd. They thought we should have known, they thought we did know perhaps, and they thought that basically we should be removed from the case um, permanently, the um, whole case. The whole case.
0: Whoa! After devoting your, you know, two and a half to—I guess by this time it's closer to three years—and they want yes. to just push you both off of the case.
1: They wanted to push us off the case. They were listening to defense counsel Williams and Conley, which was headquartered there in DC, was making daily trips over to the fraud division, telling their version of the events and and alluding to a lot of information that that just was not accurate and the fraud section was buying it or at least as they would probably portray or or how they portrayed it at the time is out of an abundance of caution we had to assume this is true they ordered us off the case and they ordered us not to have any more contact with mark whitaker which was a terrible move because this man was coming under attack for his cooperation with the fbi You see, Decatur is a company town, and the headlines of the day were basically that Mark Whitaker was taking down the the, the town's company, and that um, this company, ADM, that had provided so much money to local schools and churches was being attacked because of this man named Mark Whitaker. He was not seen in the community as wearing a white hat. He was seen as wearing a black hat. And so Mark is being attacked daily um, in the newspaper articles by his character and his motivation. And now Brian and I are off the case, and we're told we can't have any contact with Mark at all. And so he's he's been cut off from his lifeline. Mark's life went in a spiral, and not only did he go to Fortune magazine, he then went to the Wall Street Journal. He then filed a lawsuit in federal court alleging agent misconduct, alleging that we hit him on the head with briefcases and that Brian destroyed tapes that were unfavorable to to ADM. Um, Mark Whitaker then attempted suicide twice. And there's questions about if these were real attempts or phony attempts, but either way, um, you know, it was certainly a symptom of something going on in his life that was was awful. And then things started coming out that he had lied about his degree and that he had lied about his parents being killed. Yeah,
0: tell Um, tell us about that because that... That definitely was a clue so early on because he started telling that lie. I take it in, in college, wasn't it?
1: Yes. He, um, for some reason, he felt the need to tell people that his parents died when he was at a young age um, in a car accident and that a wealthy family that ran an amusement park had adopted him. And he told that story over and over and over, and it worked its way into his bio that was distributed, you know, to different different places. As with his uh, degree in bioscience, his degree is actually his PhD is in nutrition, but Mark supposedly listed on his resume that he had a PhD in, in bioscience. So both of these lies, these big lies, uh, were coming out, and of course that's very embarrassing. And his parents were alive, and his parents are, are reading this, you know, thinking, why would our son say? That he was adopted and that, and that we were killed in in a car accident and then the final thing was mark staged his own kidnapping he, he claimed that that he was on the streets of chicago and, and some thugs picked him up and threw him in the back of a car and like in a mafia style started roughing him up and telling him he can't testify at court and they were sawing off the the locks or the locks have been sawed off so he couldn't escape and, and mark went on live television in decatur illinois to tell the story of being kidnapped.
0: I guess he was looking for sympathy.
1: I think so. Um, and so this is a story I want to tell you about Director Louis Free. The case is falling apart. Every day, Brian and I are talking on the phone, but we, we can't work the case. We see our source spiraling out of control, but we know the power of the tapes. We know what's on tapes. We know what the executives at ADM and at the other companies had done and, and we're doing. And it appeared to us as if they were getting away. And so I asked for an audience with Director Free. I got it. And I spoke with the director. My supervisor and I spoke with the director um, in Washington, D.C. And I said, look, we're we're losing the case. And he knew us because he had been out to the field office uh, to visit us. He had talked to us. He had been briefed about the case over and over. And he knew what it was like to be an FBI agent. And I said, look, I'll take a polygraph. I'll do whatever you want. I didn't do any of this. I didn't know about the $500,000, but we're losing this big case. And he walked over to the Department of Justice and spoke in person with a gentleman named Seth Waxman, who later became the U.S. general solicitor to the Supreme Court. And he said, I want Brian Shepard and Bob Herndon back on the case. The very next day, Brian and I were able to go out and meet with Mark and his wife. And let them know what had been going on, and things started to turn better at that point.
0: What did Mark think had happened to you two? Did anybody he, explain?
1: No, he he thought he thought we had abandoned him, and his wife Ginger thought that the FBI had turned their back on their on on her husband and on on their family. And um, Mark was being hit, you know, all over town again, and he's been isolated, and um, he started lashing out. Now, one silver lining of the suicide attempts was that Mark received some medical attention. It was determined that Mark had a history of mental mental, mental illness in his family, uh, bipolar disease, and that he was diagnosed as being bipolar and was placed on medicine. And that helped to level out those highs and those lows um, that we sometimes saw as as case agents.
0: So some of the... I mean, the underlying fraud can't be blamed on 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 him being bipolar, but definitely the things that he would make up and some of the lies, you know, were just his way of of reacting to pressure. I take it. I'm I'm not a I'm a psychology major, but I'm not
1: a oh, psychologist. Really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just play one on TV.
0: Yeah. But it it does. I mean, you can't blame everything on him being bipolar, but some of the way he reacted, like the abduction, um, you know, uh, story, that sounds like it's something that could have been a a product of him, of him being bipolar.
1: Uh, Yes. And to Mark's credit, he did not try to, he nor his train did not try to lessen his role in price fixing or in the fraud uh, due to his disease. But I think it did explain some of the actions. But again, some of this came into play because of, in my opinion, how the fraud section basically wanted to ignore the price fixing case, which was the bigger case. And they wanted to to concentrate on the smaller fish and they wanted to go in for a quick hit. In fact, um, they wanted to move so quickly on Whitaker and bring a charge so quickly that there were several outstanding leads overseas that. Tony D'Angelo and Mike Bassett were trying to cover, and the Department of Justice was telling them, no, don't, don't waste your time on that, we, we have enough. And to the credit of Tony D'Angelo and Mike Bassett and their supervisor, Rob Grant, those three men stood up for a case that they really knew nothing about, and they stood up for two agents that had been accused of wrongdoing, and, and these two guys didn't know us, but they stood up for what's right uh, on how to r- run a case. They went to meetings with very high power people in the Department of Justice and said, no, we're not going to do it this way. We're going to collect all the evidence and then see what we have. I can't say enough about these guys and what the Chicago office did to investigate the $500,000, but also along the way to support Brian and I and to preserve the integrity of the price fixing investigation.
0: Wow. I do have to ask you another question, though. And, mm-hmm. of course, I I know the answers because I read the book. But you are not living in Decatur. You're, ma- you're still making that commute. But Brian Shepard, your co-case agent, has been a part of the community. You know, his neighbors were there. He had his kids and his wife. So when you talk about the community turning their backs on Mark Whitaker, what were they doing? How were they reacting to... Brian Shepard.
1: Very good question. You're right. I lived 40 miles away in Springfield, Illinois. It might as well have been 4,000 miles away. My neighbors didn't question me about the ADM case once it became public. Once all those ugly articles started to hit the paper, there was even an article in the Wall Street Journal where a pastor from, from a Decatur church was blaming um, the federal government, the FBI, and Mark Whitaker for hurting ADM. I didn't feel any of that. Brian, forty miles away in the company town, where he had two kids in the school system and, and a wife that, that worked in the community, they were feeling it. Their neighbors looked at them differently. There were some snide comments made to the kids at school, and they were feeling the stares. Even at church, there were some comments made to them that were not in the best of light. Brian had given everything on this case. Brian is very much a people person, which sometimes used to drive me nuts because in the sense that I get to work on Monday morning and I'm ready to go because, you know, two of us were were running a case that you could have had a whole squad on, but because the Springfield division did not want to lose control of the case, they never wanted to tell headquarters, hey, there's too much here just for two guys. So so Brian and I had tons of work to do. I'd come to work Monday morning, ready to hit the to-do list. And Brian would want to spend an hour talking about how my weekend was. But that's what made him a great handler of Mark Whitaker. Brian is a great listener. And this poor guy had to go through hell on a case that he had given so much on. And People were believing the stories. They were believing that the agents were on the take and they were believing the agents took shortcuts. It was bad.
0: And he kind of uh, he foresaw this in, in the sense that when he was first told about this case and assigned the case, he questioned whether or not he would be the right person because of his connection to Decatur and the fact that ADM was, you know, the major employer, he, he actually said, at least it's, this is what it says in the book, that he said to his supervisor, I may not be the right person, because, you know, I'm already connected to ADM. And the fact that, you know, I live in this community. So he knew that this, he thought that this would happen. And it did.
1: Right. And along with that same conversation, you know, his supervisor, his boss told him, we will always support you. And um, this was actually the ASAC of the office, John Hoyt, who did a great job leading this case with our SAC, Don Stuckey. John ended up with his own fights with headquarters and slamming down phones and trying to be very diplomatic with with people who had no interest in deploying uh, diplomacy. But yes, Brian did foresee this and um, was concerned about it, and unfortunately, it unfolded and played into some of his fears.
0: This is why I was thrilled to connect with you on LinkedIn and 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 have you on this show because these when when they when people say they say to the military and they say to the FBI, thank you for your service they may be talking at this level, but they don't understand, you know, the really deep emotional level of commitment to some of these cases, the emotional toll that, you know, some of these cases have. And, you know, I've I've seen it in in my career we've had case reviews on, on this podcast with other agents But, you know, here we are again, we're we're talking about, you know, Brian Shepard, but you too being falsely accused and there being a time when you weren't sure if you had the support of the Bureau behind you. Thank God that that you did.
1: Yes. Here's something on a personal level. You know, we we talked about our emotions. The case went on for so long, my wife and I actually had two of our three kids were born during the case, and on um, both those kids, I was so busy and Brian was so busy that you know neither of us thought it'd be good for me to take too much time off, and so both our kids were scheduled inducements on a Friday, so we could have the weekend, uh, you know, to take care of the newborn babies, and then I could, hit, you know, hit the road on Monday um, on the case. <laughs> and
0: you know, I, and I, know, <laughs> I know you're thinking, how bizarre.
1: Yeah, isn't that bizarre? I,
0: I cannot believe. <laughs> but, you know, I understand. I mean, I I can probably tell you some stories that of things that I, you know, did as far as my 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 family. I got three kids that I look back and say, now that I'm a grandmother and I'm I'm you know, really falling in love with with my uh, grandchild in those early days. I I wanted to get back to work.
1: Yeah. Uh the job is very intoxicating. It's a fun job. Sometimes I'd be angry when it's Friday. I, I want to keep going. I mean, how crazy is that? Now, one thing, getting back to the birth of our kids on a Friday, there's a thing I tell agents that that behind um, every successful agent uh, who's married, that there's there's probably a very supportive spouse. Uh, we couldn't do what we do with the hours we work and the Absolutely. situations.
0: Absolutely. Right? Oh my God. Yeah. My husband is the same. He was a um, a high school teacher. And so, you know, he was home before the kids to get them off the, off the bus and to take them to their practices. He was home all summer. I could not have done what I did in the Bureau, the 26 years, if it wasn't for my husband and go ahead, give a shout out to your wife.
1: No, she, her name's Raylene and she was very supportive of the case and of me. Very awesome. And so anyway, I, I was only, um, I was allowed to be good because I had had a great wife at home. So,
0: Tell us a little bit more. I know it wasn't part of your active investigation, but we've mentioned this $500,000, but those case agents in Chicago find out it's a lot more than that.
1: Yeah. So uh, Mark Whitaker confessed to taking $500,000, and it probably will not shock your listeners to learn that, The money was slightly more than that because as Tony uh, D'Angelo and Mike Bassett started to dig into it, they started to find more and more, but also helping them in, in a twist of irony were the defense attorneys at ADM. They wanted to dirty up our source. They wanted to dirty up Mark Whitaker. And so they were looking very hard at every invoice that Mark Whitaker ever touched. In fact, I don't know if I told the listeners this earlier but this fraud was first discovered by the ADM attorneys. There was always a question in the government's mind because the attorneys from ADM found this very quickly. Um, How they found it so quickly? There was a thought that perhaps that Mark was telling the truth, that ADM's higher-up officials knew about these invoices and under-the-table payments, and that's how they were able to identify them so quickly. Over time, we came to learn that the more likely explanation was that an attorney not working on the criminal matter was working at looking at other contracts that Mark had, had um, been involved with and had noticed that there were two contracts for the same company and that the signatures were exactly the same, that they had been photocopied. And when you have two invoices on two different dates for two different amounts and the signatures are exactly the same, that's an indication you know, that, that one's fabricated. It's that invoice that then led to the criminal defense attorneys to look at every invoice that Mark Whitaker had ever touched. And when they did that and the FBI agents were doing the job they were doing, they were a pretty powerful team. And that $500,000. An odd
0: odd team.
1: (laughs) Yes, a very odd team but it's one that gives, actually gave us confidence that, that we found the last dollar. I'm, I'm constantly asked when I give these presentations every so often, like, well, how do you know it's nine and a half million? You have a guy who's always lying. And I have pretty good confidence it was, it was nine and a half million because two, one reason, we had top-notch agents and, and Tony and Mike working on it. Secondly, though, we had these very motivated defense attorneys from one of the most prestigious firms in America, Williams and Conley, uh, working on it. That Team working together. I'm pretty confident it was nine and a half million dollars.
0: Wow! And again, I know this was the Chicago agents who, who who did this, but even with and I and I certainly understand, you know, the the invoicing. I, I had a number of cases myself with false invoicing. But nine million dollars? How do you hide nine million dollars? Could you bring us up up yeah. to speed on that?
1: Uh, you hide it because you don't have to hide it. Um, you are the president of um, a fast growing company. And uh, when any company has a, a time period of hyper growth, internal controls go out the window. Um, and um, that's, what w- that's the situation that the Bio Products Division found themselves in. And um, so Mark Whitaker would simply either have his friends mail in these phony invoices or he would deliver them himself. To the accounting department, there wasn't much checks or balance because they were spending millions and millions to get this plant up and running. Um, it wasn't like these stood out in, in amount or in frequency. And um, and when you have the president of the division saying, hey, this is good, pay this, well, the person in the finance office is not going to ask any questions. And so it's a recipe for disaster. And um, so that's how the money um, got paid out. And then Mark, on his job as, as division president, he traveled the world. That was one of the challenges we had on the case is is hooking up with Mark because he was always out, out of the country. We, we learned you know, after the fact that one of the things he was doing when he was out of the country, besides having meetings with other business leaders, uh, other companies, was he was setting up the phony accounts in Switzerland and in the Cayman Islands. And so he he would have the, checks from ADM, he'd either get them in person and hand deliver them and deposit them in Switzerland, or he would have money sometimes sent to somebody working with him. And he would, he, let's say he'd have $500,000 sent. He'd tell a person, Hey, for your efforts, you go ahead and keep a hundred thousand, but then wire transfer the other 400,000 to my Cayman Island bank account. And he'd have different excuses for what the money represented. So he had lots of, different means to do his crime, which showed some thought, kind of conniving. This wasn't something that was just accidentally done. It had a lot of moving parts, involved a lot of different people, involved a lot of different lies to these people. Of course, he never told any of them that he was embezzling money. He always had some sort of story that halfway made sense. And when you combine that with greed, you combine that with, hey, I get to keep $100,000 for simply cashing a check, then you know you believe the story. Um, The Chicago agents did an unbelievable job finding these people all over the world, convincing them to talk and asking the right questions and, and documenting some of their FD302s are some of the best I've ever seen written. And at the same time, though, they're fighting the fraud section and they're getting beat up themselves on a case that, you know, they're trying to help us. One more thing I want to say about the Chicago agents, there came a point in time where our two cases were overlapping they were finding out information on the price fixing case. And, and, and by that time, they knew that um, myself and Brian were not involved in these um, these schemes, that we had no involvement. And by that time they had learned about, wow, these guys have been working this case for two and a half years. And they, they learned about all the tapes we made and all the, all the great things we had done on, on one of the most powerful corporations in America. And no one knew about it. They wanted to get us the information and they knew the right, Right thing to do was to contact us and but that was not their marching orders, but they they took a risk and, and they said no, these guys are innocent. they need to have this information or or the government may lose this price fixing case and so they contacted us behind the scenes so they could coordinate their actions and so we could provide them some history and I worked with Tony D'Angelo telling him some things from the price fixing case that helped him then become in a better position to collect evidence on the um, embezzlement of Whitaker.
0: At what point did the ADM defense attorneys turn away from the accusations that you and, and uh, Shepard were involved?
1: Well, I don't think they ever turned away from it. They, they wanted to play that card all the way through, through trial. And certainly during the suppression hearing in Chicago, mo- most suppression hearings take place, oh, maybe 30 minutes to an hour we had a suppression hearing that, that I believe took about three full days. And um, I was on the stand for hours. ADM was still playing that, that thread that Brian and I were negligent and that we were not following policy and procedures and that we were rogue agents. Wow. And, yeah, and um, we had a federal judge that, you know, she didn't know, right? Uh, you, you know, you, you have a very prestigious law firm making the, these allegations taking a shotgun defense approach, you know, she, she made some rulings where she said, I don't think they were grossly negligent, but maybe they were close to it. And so she made some concessions to the defense. And wow.
0: And you would think yeah. that, it, <laughs> that she would understand because we all know, you know, how this works. If the defense cannot attack the evidence, then they attack the investigators.
1: Amen. And that's exactly what happened. Kind of an interesting thing, ADM was able to kind of preview their trial case during the suppression hearing. So um, it made me a better witness at trial because I kind of knew what was coming because they, they previewed it. But it also made them better at cross-examination because they knew you know, what my responses were going to be. So really, it was a game of cat and mouse. I found the trial to be very, very interesting. The defendants seemed to have defense attorneys that matched their personalities. How nice, yeah, it's it's there's a gentleman named Reed Weingarten um, who defended Terry Wilson, and Terry Wilson was a, um, a very outgoing guy who talked like a sailor. Every other word was a swear word, but that was his vernacular. And when he said the words he said, he didn't really think twice. that's just that was just Terry. Reed Weingarten was kind of like that uh, in cross-examination of me. He'd be spitting on me and throwing his arms around. And then, you know, during break, we'd be in the restroom standing next to each other. And he'd say, Bob, you're doing a great job in the stand. Um, And um, he was very, you know, very polite, very nice, you know, behind the scenes. But then he put on a show, but did did a good job defending his client. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I can see that so clearly because, you know, you get into court, they're a whole different person, you know, but you just have to remember that. You know, you always right, you do. have to remember that.
1: You do. There's there's another battle I need to tell you about. Remember how the antitrust division, I was telling you earlier how the antitrust division had to battle the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Central District just to get the case. And at the end of the day, they won, won that battle. But when Whitaker's fraud became known, the fraud division of the Department of Justice, they wanted to call all the shots. They really didn't care you know, so much about the bigger case. So They're w- willing to put everything onto the smaller case of prosecuting Whitaker at the expense of the bigger case. And so the antitrust division had to fight that fight. And there were some very animated conference calls where lawyers are exchanging, um, government lawyers are exchanging very politically incorrect um, language towards one another. It, it was bizarre to listen and to be part of that. Um, and as I said earlier, some of our greatest battles are internal. And um, as you said, and as the director of the FBI said, you know, big cases, big problems. Once again, the antitrust division was able to secure what they needed to go forward with the price fixing case. And then there towards the end, our, our team got augmented by the U.S. attorney from, from uh, the Northern District of Chicago, a man named Scott Lassar. And with his office support and with him as lead attorney with Jim Griffin, the lead from antitrust, we had a great team that was able to overcome all these challenges we were facing.
0: Now, were there two different trials or did Mark Whitaker plead guilty in the embezzlement case?
1: Yes. So timing wise, the antitrust division would have preferred to have one trial and, and, and then have Mark, um, after his cooperation, have him plead or be sentenced at that time. The Fraud Division was not hearing any of that. And so they went ahead and charged Mark um, in an in indictment. And then Mark pled guilty to the indictment before the price-fixing trial. Another thing I, I want to point out is that Mark had a very good defense attorney named Jim Epstein, who made some very convincing arguments um, on Mark's behalf to the government, he had actually negotiated a deal of about three to five years imprisonment for for Mark. But Mark was going through the time period where he couldn't handle the fact that the government was blaming him at all. And he was still in his spiral going downward. And and Brian and I were not able to have contact with Mark. And and Mark was, you know, um, just unstable. So Mark fired his defense attorney who worked so hard to get him this deal of three to five years. He fired him and got basically a personal injury attorney to represent him, a guy who I'm sure is a nice man, but he wasn't equipped to try this type of case. But Mark liked him because he was agreeing with Mark. You know, whenever you feel offended, you get people that that agree with you. You know, they become come your friend.
0: And this (sighs) was the attorney who assisted Mark in filing the lawsuits against. Have, Have we gotten to that point yet?
1: Well, we mentioned the lawsuits, but yes, this is during the, the, the time period of Mark going downhill, and this is the attorney that filed that lawsuit. He took Mark's statements to be the truth, where Mr. Epstein you know, was challenging Mark at this time. Uh, Jim Epstein, his original attorney, had seen enough of Mark's lies, and he was telling Mark, you do not want to file a lawsuit against these agents. I don't believe you, for one. You just don't want to go down that road. This is not true. The next attorney didn't question him like that, and the lawsuit was filed. And, and so Mark's deal of three to five years is off the table, and now he's charged separately, and he gets sentenced by Judge Baker um, out of the S- Central District of Illinois. He gets uh, sentenced to um, approximately 10 years in prison.
0: Wow, what a difference.
1: What a difference, yeah. And here's something else kind of bizarre. I've never had a case where a defendant is not present in the courtroom. So when it came time to try the um, – the price fixing case, Mark had already been sentenced on the fraud case. And so he's in prison. He's starting his 10 year sentence. Uh, It comes time for the price fixing case and, and Mark shows up and they move him from a prison, a camp, a correctional camp in North Carolina. They move him to Chicago's main lockup. So here we find Mark Whitaker, this white collar executive who had been in a, um, like a correctional camp where there's a line you're not supposed to cross. Now he's behind bars with much more violent people. People who have been um, charged or convicted of violent crimes. And, and Mark is fearing for his life. And he mm-hmm. comes to trial. He comes to the courtroom uh, before we start the trial. we you know There's all these preliminary things you take care of. Mark, through his attorney, is saying, I don't want to be here. And the judge questioned him over and over saying, this is unusual, um, you know, you need to be here. And and she's worried about appeals if he's not there. He signs away all his rights, eventually gets his way. He does not attend his own trial, which looked very weird in the courtroom as you had three different tables. Uh, We had three defendants and and each table is reserved for for the defendant and, and his team of lawyers.
0: I think we need to explain to people what you're talking about when you said that he is not at his own trial, you know, as as a defendant. We're talking about the ADM price-fixing trial. Could you explain, you know, the fact that Mark was charged in that and the decision to do that?
1: Sure. Typically, cooperating witnesses are not charged for the crimes that they assist the government with. That's part of the deal. They're telling us about something we don't know about. We would not have known about it had they not come forward. And so typically, they're not charged with that particular crime, even though they may have been committing the crime. Or if they are charged, they get enough credit for their cooperation where there's no r- real effect as far as going to prison. In the ADM case, though, things had changed from the way we normally do them. Typically, a cooperator is not stealing $10 million, right? And, and not lying to us over and over and over and not filing false lawsuits and faking their own kidnappings. All those things had, had unfolded. And so there came a point in time where a decision was made that this cooperation agreement that you signed, we're going to enforce the part that says that that if you lie to us or you commit crime, other crimes that we don't know about, the cooperation agreement is, is void and you're going to be charged. And so Mark Whitaker, who had already been sentenced to 10 years in prison for the fraud, Mark Whitaker was also charged with price fixing, but he was only charged for price fixing that occurred before he met the FBI. So Mark was not charged with um, these price-fixing meetings that we tape recorded. He was not charged for those meetings, but he was charged because of all his actions uh, for the price-fixing meetings that occurred before the FBI knew about the violation.
0: That sounds fair. So he got immunity for the things that he did under your watch.
1: Correct. Under our direction and control, he got immunity for that. So he finds himself as a defendant at the price-fixing trial. He goes from a nice prison in North Carolina where he was playing softball on a regular basis. He finds himself in a city jail in Chicago with um, some violent people as cellmates. And he did not like that. And so he begged and begged uh, the judge through his attorney not to be present during his own trial.
0: Wouldn't he have done just as well to have pled guilty? to those matters in the first place?
1: That's a very good question. His attorney tried to negotiate a plea, but uh, almost a non-starter for for the attorney and for Mark was doing any more time for price fixing. Uh, He couldn't get over that hurdle that nobody would have known about this had I not told them. Um, He couldn't get to the next step that his own actions of stealing money had caused government to take the step of charging him. And he really thought through his attorney that even if he's found guilty, he'll receive what we call a um, concurrent sentence. So he wouldn't really get any more jail time. What ended up happening, though, he was convicted and received a consecutive sentence. Wow. Yes. And that's rare in a white collar crime case to receive a consecutive sentence.
0: Especially when he got up to 10 years on the embezzlement. And I take it that he got much less on the price fixing,
1: he did. It's a three-year statute, and you know he he got some consideration for cooperation, but he still got sentenced. Um, I forget I forget the additional months, but it was added on. It's almost like an insult. It was salt in the wound uh, um, from his perspective. And again, it's kind of unusual to go consecutive on a white collar crime case when you have multiple charges. You typically go concurrent. That's interesting. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poor Mark yeah. Whitaker. Poor Mark Whitaker. Isn't it funny? See, now you've been hearing about Mark Whitaker for two or three hours, and and, and you're thinking the same thing as we did. Poor yeah. Mark Whitaker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, so, something that's kind of, kind of different that some, some of your listeners will, will find interesting, I think, is that typically when a cooperator makes a tape recording, their real value is that they are the person that introduces a tape recording at trial. Uh, They're the law. Yeah, Yeah, they authenticate the tapes. Mm -hmm. They're in the logical position to do it, that I made this tape. That's my voice. I was at the meeting. They tell about the meeting. They tell about the people who participated. They they, they authenticate the other voices on the tape and and they say, look, I was at the meeting from beginning to end. And this tape captures everything that happened that meeting. It's the way it's always done. Well, with Mark Whitaker being a defendant, the government can't call him (laughs) To do that.
0: Oh, okay. So he wasn't going to do that anyway, because I was. I was wondering how you got around that. Yeah. And he, you know, was not present in court, but it wasn't going to happen anyway.
1: It's kind of a novel way of doing it. I ended up introducing the tapes, and be- before the government charged Mark Whitaker, the government worked hard. Our prosecutors worked hard to find precedents for a case agent to introduce the tapes, and, and there were cases out there where um you know defendants had passed away before trial or I should say cooperating witnesses had passed away before trial but they're they were kind of hard pressed to find you know a solid case and so it was a matter of debate for me to lay the foundation and the court reserved judgment until it was all done uh, before accepting the tapes. But I was the one who was then on the on the stand to authenticate each tape based off my knowledge of the case, my knowledge of the participants, my interviews of, of the participants my surveillances, the chain of custody, and the topics being discussed. So it, it, that became kind of a different legal way of introducing tapes in, in a case.
0: And that brings up a point, because we're talking about the trial. Probably the most emotional point of the book for me was the decision that was made at the beginning of that trial. Could you talk about that?
1: Um not only emotional for you but emotional for many of of the participants in federal cases there is case law that recognizes case agents um, investigators fbi special agents as being part of the legal team and even though in most federal cases the case agent will testify at trial there is a special provision that allows us not to be sequestered that means we, we don't have to stay outside the courtroom there is acknowledgement that on many cases, the case matter is so complex that the attorneys need assistance and that the assistance can be provided by the case agent of the case.
0: And, and talk about just in relationship to other witnesses. The other witnesses are usually not allowed in the courtroom.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so other witnesses in a case, factual witnesses, um, eyewitnesses, they're typically not allowed in the courtroom they 're what we call they 're sequestered they 're asked to stay out of the courtroom, and the reason for that is we don 't want their testimony to be shaped by the events they see in the courtroom. We want them to go back in their mind to the actual day or or topic of discussion and to tell us their best recall and then sometimes um, the defense knows that that some witnesses you know may be lying, and so we don 't the defense and, and also the government. You know, we don't want witnesses conforming their testimony to support the testimony of others. And so it's a very common practice in in any federal trial that witnesses are not generally allowed to sit in the courtroom and watch the proceedings. But there is that one exception I noted for the FBI case agent. Most cases have simply one case agent and defense teams, because this is kind of subtle law, they never make any challenges to the idea that, hey, the FBI agent is getting to watch all this, and then the FBI agent is typically the last witness on a case. They're the summary witness, and they clean things up, or they better explain things that happen. Typically, the defense doesn't say anything about it. Um, you know, we're allowed to help the attorneys at the table.
0: So what happened in this situation? There's you, and there's your co-case agent, Brian Shepard
1: yeah what happened is the defense was really good. You know ADM spent I think it was publicized that they spent over fifty million dollars on their defense, and that's company funds. The individuals may have spent some more money, but they had really good attorneys. The attorneys knew that Brian and I worked well together that we're, we were a team, and you know sometimes when the strategy is to conquer the team you know that that one strategy is to divide the team. They propose, right after opening statements from the government, they propose in open court this motion that the government had to pick and choose and made a strong argument that only one of us should be allowed in the courtroom. Their argument to the judge was that this is a very tough case, Judge, and there will be allegations, there will be evidence presented of agent misconduct. And we don't want the agents to see each other's testimony. And so we believe in this case that the government should not be allowed to have two case agents to assist them, but rather at most one, our preference would be none, but but at most one. The judge listened to the arguments and apparently they had been arguing um, during a break. Brian and I did not know this, but this motion apparently came up in the chambers. And because the judge commented that, you know, we've been discussing this back in the chambers. and I've been thinking about it. And and the judge said, I'm going to allow just one case agent to remain. And um, wow. Yeah. And and so, you know, now. Which one? Yeah. Now our attention is 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 fully into this motion. We we understand what's at stake. Uh, This is a case that, that both of us had worked so hard on and it meant so much to us. And a trial was a part where it helps you get over it. It helps you get the information out. Um, it it's a helps resolution. It's a resolution, yeah. And um, the the attorney for the government stood up, and the team had discussed it, and, and they they said Bob Herndon, and the judge was a little bit confused. The judge did not understand if that meant that that I would be the one staying or I would be the one leaving. So the judge asked a clarifying question: You know, does Herndon stay or leave? And, and the government said, no, uh, we want Bob Herndon to stay. Wow. Wow. And, yeah.
0: So you, you have to take us through. You know, you've got your, your co-case agent who actually started on the case before you did. And it's the one also who lived in the community and felt the brunt of, you know, your actions more than you did. And here the assistant United States attorney that you're working with chooses you to stay.
1: Yeah, and on top of this, this is a packed courtroom with every major newspaper, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Wall Street Journal there, TV stations there, sketch artists. This is the most exciting time during a trial, the opening arguments uh, of a case that in in the financial world was closely followed. And um, um, very emotional as Brian, in a very quiet courtroom, had to gather all his belongings. He had a briefcase, and you can imagine that in a case this complex, we have a lot of things spread out. And he's having to collect all his uh, documents and his notepads and put them back into his briefcase while everyone stares at him. How and, humiliating. Uh, I mean, yes. just,
0: there's no other word for it. Just devastating, demoralizing.
1: I found myself shaking, just looking. It, 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 was, um, it
0: was dismissed.
1: Yes, he was dismissed um, as if he had done something wrong. He had done nothing wrong, but the people didn't know that.
0: Why did the attorney, the prosecutor, pick you over Brian? Do you know? Did he ever tell you?
1: Yes, it was a a team decision. It was uh, apparently greatly debated um, behind the scenes. We were no longer in the investigative stage. Brian's strength was with Mark Whitaker, handling Mark, talking with Mark, As you noted, Brian started the case. Brian got Mark to cooperate. Brian had been through a lot with with Mark. At the prosecutor stage, that skill was not needed as much as knowing the tapes, knowing the government strategy, knowing the tapes inside and out, knowing references, knowing out of the 200 tapes, you know, where a certain comment is. If the defense were to say a comment, being able to quickly find that tape, that transcript, uh, being able to counteract it. With, with a quick note to the prosecutor that yes, tape 102 may say this, but tape 106 clears it up with this comment. I had that skill. I had memorized basically the tapes. I had a previous case on a federal judge in New Orleans, the first time in bureau history where we had a a wiretap, a Title Three in the chambers of a sitting U.S. District Court judge, a Title Three case that was heavily dependent on tape recordings. I learned my lesson in that case about knowing exactly what's said on tape and what's not said, and, and to know, you know, what you had and what you d- didn't have. So I had done that during, throughout the case, and the prosecutors had seen that. And, and the prosecutors explained later to Brian, hey, this was not um, meant to be anything personal. This was a str- strategy decision because we ne- needed Bob's knowledge of the tapes. But and
0: also, we uh, haven't really mentioned. I think you did mention, but you know, this is a, a financial fraud case, and and you are an accountant, a, a CPA. So I I would think that that swayed them a little bit too.
1: Right, and I'd had um, a lot of experience on white collar crime cases, as you said, I'm a CPA before I joined the bureau. My degrees in accounting. That's one reason I was put on the case because they wanted somebody with, with a financial background when I transferred in. So there were there were strategy reasons, but you know, I, I I could talk all day long about these strategy reasons. It, at the end of the day, though, we're talking about emotions, and we're talking about people's lives. And we're talking about that moment of redemption that Brian didn't get to personally feel and experience in that courtroom.
0: And you said that one of the strategies, that the strategy of doing this for the defense attorneys was to divide you. And In the book, you know, you you talk about how, at least initially after this happened, it did just that.
1: It did. Um, So that day when court was dismissed, Jim Muchnick, one of the government attorneys, and I went to visit with Brian. And Brian was visibly upset. He had been crying. He was just upset. And, And Jim was explaining why I was picked, but it didn't matter why I was picked. You know, we can be as logical as we want, but that doesn't make it right, and it doesn't address the emotions. So we went out to dinner with Brian. We were all, you know, we got to the point of, of, you know, we cried a little bit together, but we also got to the point of being able to talk it through. Jim had come up with a game plan where we would still need Brian, and we couldn't tell him what was going on during the day at court, but Jim came up with rules uh, or a game plan that that would allow Brian to stay involved and kind of be a gopher, kind of help out, get us things we needed. It was, you know, all legal and proper. But it was a way also to have Brian feel like he's part of the team. And, and, and Jim and I came up with a game plan that every day we're going to call Brian and, and just talk with him, not about the day's events because we couldn't do that, but just talk about life. Now, Brian and I had um, talked every day for almost two and a half years, and, and we had become fast and good friends. But there came a point, Jerry, where all of a sudden Brian stopped responding. And he would not answer the phone when I called. Uh, He would not, when when we asked him to to supply things, they were slow sometimes in in getting to us or they weren't complete. Something was off. And Jim was also getting the cold shoulder. And, you know, we're we're investigators. So we kind of knew what was up. How long
0: Uh, was the trial? So you can give us an idea how long this was going on.
1: Yeah, the, the, um, I don't remember the exact date the trial started, but we were up there in May. And where's
0: Uh, where's there? Because I take it it wasn't in Decatur.
1: No, it wasn't in Decatur. It was up in Chicago in the Northern District of Illinois. I had actually moved from my my residence. I I got transferred right before the trial started to my hometown of Kansas City. And so my family had already moved to Kansas City, and I moved up to an apartment um, in Chicago in May of 1998. And then Brian had secured lodging up there in May of 1998, and the trial went until September 1998. So the good part of the summer 1998 was I was I spent in Chicago. After being dismissed, Brian left Chicago the next day and stayed in Decatur until it was time for him to testify. But before that point, when when I noticed that that Brian was not talking to me, and I I told Jim this, and Jim said he's not talking to him either. I sent Brian a. a fax. That tells you how old the case is. (laughs) We're using fax machines to communicate.
0: What's
1: a fax? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Nowadays it'd be a a text or an email, right? But (laughs) um, we were using fax machines. So I typed out a letter to Brian that basically this was tearing me apart. I'd also offered, I went to both co-leads, Scott Lassar, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, and Jim Griffin, the chief of the Chicago branch of the antitrust division, I went to both, saying, "Look, take me off. I can still help you. You know, behind the scenes, I can be the gopher. I can tell you, you know, tapes. Maybe not real time, but I can tell you, you know, that by the end of the day, the things you guys want." This is killing me. It's killing Brian. And you know, he started the case, and he's got a big time emotional attachment. And he was attacked in Decatur, and he was attacked by the source. Both of them reiterated, "We're not going to do that." Uh, so that I sent Brian then a fax is very personal. It didn't really change things immediately, but there came a point in time where after Brian testified, Brian was allowed to stay in the courtroom after he testified and he rejoined us at the table. He became part of the team. And I think the the facts and time and then being part of the team helped to heal some of the immediate pain he was feeling. I don't think it, it healed the deeper wounds. But Brian was professional enough to say, you know, I'm here now and I'm part of the team and and we could use his expertise and his knowledge and his recall of of the early events on the case. And so things got better. In fact, after the case went to jury, the, the jury had the case, I forget, it's well over a week, maybe two weeks. Well, during that time, we didn't have much to do and we would end up just goofing around the office together and there was a game of Nerf basketball. And every day Brian and I I would be sitting there, you know, in our shirt and ties and our guns on our hip playing uh, Nerf basketball, waiting for the jury uh, to come back. And and we started the process of healing our relationship, but I don't think it ever healed totally as, um, you know, this is something that there's just a lot of pain for him.
0: You know, one thing um, that we probably should just take a moment to say who's on trial uh, we, know that, we know that Whitaker decided uh, he didn't want to you know, stay in the courtroom. He wanted to go back to the, the prison camp. But exactly what executives at ADM are on trial?
1: There were two executives on trial, uh, Terry Wilson, uh, the divisional vice president, who was known as the fixer, and then Michael Andreas, the CEO of ADM, who was the son of uh, Dwayne Andreas. So they were on trial for ADM. We had secured cooperation and plea agreements from all the companies involved in the conspiracy to include ADM. So, ADM, as a corporate entity, had already pled guilty before the trial and paid a fine, which was a record fine at the time, of $100 million. Wow. All, yeah, all the other, it, it was the lead story on, on the nightly news that night uh, on NBC, and Tom Brokaw announced this record $100 million fine. That's a hard thing for ADM to do because they're, they're closely aligned with the Andreas family. And they were basically saying as a company that they're hanging out to dry at the sun, the CEO, because the company was saying, yeah, our company did this. If you start thinking about it, companies are made up of individuals.
0: I understand from reading the book, though, that this is actually the second time that somebody in the Andreas family had been charged with a crime. So if you could just real quickly tell us about that.
1: Sure. It was well before my time, but it's a case that's very important to American political history, the Watergate case. When that case started to unfold, the burglars breaking into the headquarters for, for the uh, Democratic reelection committee. Um, as they started to look at the bank accounts of those different individuals involved in that break-in, they found $25,000 from Dwayne Andreas, the chairman of the board of ADM, McAndreas's father. There were some sort of campaign finance violations he was charged with for that $25,000, To my knowledge, they never got to the bottom uh, of connecting the the, the money with anything more specific. But there was enough to show a campaign violation, campaign um, fund violation charge.
0: Wow, that's it's interesting. I actually have done two episodes with the main case agent and one of the case agents that worked on the Watergate case. And so we've heard about that twenty five thousand dollars. So it's kind of, you know, funny to, to, to find out where it came from.
1: It loops back into another criminal case. Isn't that, isn't that yeah. amazing?
0: Yeah, it is.
1: Yeah. And right, so. Well, one, one more thing about ADM. Although Dwayne Andreas had that incident, their company also, though, when the Bureau had an undercover case on the Chicago Commodities Exchange, those seats are very expensive. ADM supported an undercover FBI agent to be on that commodity board to gather evidence of this crime. Do you know who the undercover agent was? No. The undercover agent was Special Agent Mike Bassett. He was one of the agents, along with Tony Angelo, that investigated the fraud from Whitaker.
0: Wow. Yeah, so many full circles.
1: And you know what? When I was sitting in New Orleans as a first office agent with an accounting degree, I was interviewed for that position and offered one of those spots as as an undercover trader. But at the same time, I was offered another undercover assignment that I ended up taking in Washington, D.C.
0: And that was the one that involved uh, foreign counterintelligence. Yes. Wow. There's so many connections. What is that, degrees? (laughs)
1: Uh, Kevin Bacon, there we go. Yeah,
0: there you go. Well, this is so cool. When we started this, you had talked about how ADM played both sides of the fence, contributing to Democrats and Republicans. And it sounds like when it comes to... (laughs) Activity. They they're on both sides of the fence, also helping the FBI and and the undercover case, and and then also being you know defendants themselves in in, in an FBI case.
1: They had also contributed a large amount of money to the FBI's National Academy, and, uh, so a lot of tricky things to consider. Yeah, of,
0: of course, um, they did. Yeah. Of
1: course, they did. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? How all, all that works. So there are a lot of politics involved. A lot of things behind the scenes as you're working this type of case that you normally don't have to consider.
0: There you go. Little cases, little problems, big cases, big problems. Yeah. However, however the saying goes, (laughs) but uh, definitely a lot of eyes on you as a case agent. When you get a case that is at a national level like this with all of the news media yeah, looking at you, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a situation where you just can't think just about the case. There's all these other distractions.
1: Right. And then when that verdict came back, we were called back into the courtroom. And we're all nervous walking from the antitrust office building to the courtroom there in Chicago. We're all nervous because all of us, not just agents, but also prosecutors and analysts and legal aides, paralegals. We all invested so much of our lives, so much of our time working nights and weekends and holidays, doing things we normally wouldn't do to the nth degree of trying to make sure we're right on this thing, that we had a lot of investment in in this. And I've been to numerous jury trials and you're always a little bit nervous. You don't know know, what's going to happen, but on this one, it was very personal. And as we sat there and watched the jury come in, you know, you're trying to get a read on them. And I could not get a read on them. I um, was in a position in my chair where I was actually looking right at Michael Andreas, not to intimidate at all. I don't think he could be intimidated by me. That wasn't my goal. It's just, you know, where my, my gaze was, was looking at him. The judge goes through the process and starts to to go through through the um, all the things that she has to do to make the record correct. The verdict starts coming in. And the very first charge, very first count, we hear guilty. And all three defendants were found guilty of price fixing. And the rush of endorphins, emotions went through my body like nothing I've ever felt before.
0: Validation.
1: Yes, yes. I I did something I've never done before or never felt the need to do. I actually turned my chair then towards the jury and whispered, thank you. It was. It was redemption. It was validation. It was, we're not the bad guys. When everything was dismissed, when everybody you know was, was um, dismissed from the courtroom, Brian and I stood there and we stood up and we hugged each other. And it was a long emotional embrace. And we both had tears in our eyes. And we both talked about that we've been redeemed, we've been validated. They didn't think we did always bad things. I'd never had a case that that it turned towards me and my partner. It's you know it's always about the subjects. It's always about justice. It's always about the case. And I think the attorneys felt the same thing that they were totally relieved. It, it's a you know it's it's a, a movie and a book about a case, but it's really about individual lives and emotions.
0: Well talking about that it 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 sounds like you have been able to embrace this case and how important it was and you know even with the emotional trials and tribulations that you've been able to to see it as an important case to to talk about and to share but as I you know I do a lot of research before I do these interviews I googled you and I found you know, a number of articles where you've talked about the case, but I found none where agent Bryant Shepard talked about the case. So what happened to him? Did he decide to just turn away from the case?
1: Very good question. Part of it, uh, I'll, I'll say, um, yeah, part of it is different styles. And that's what, what made us a good team. I'm more outgoing, more comfortable talking in front of groups. I'm a glass is half full guy. And the team always joked that Brian was a glass is half empty. I was always optimistic and Brian was typically pessimistic. And what a great team, right? When you're putting together a team, um, we made a great team. I think that's why we hit it off. But that's a small part of it. You know, if you don't like giving speeches, you're not going to try to give speeches. But that's a small part. The large part is, uh, um, you know, the book's entitled The Informant. It could have very easily been entitled The Agent. As I said earlier, this is a case about emotions and real people and real lives. Brian gave his all on this case. You know, I think he's still feeling the pain coupled with it's just not his cup of tea to talk about a case. Even even after the director of the FBI asked our respective special agents in charge to make us available to the author that it was okay since all the, the case was fully adjudicated, and the director knew the author, and the director wanted the story out there. Even after that, the author had a hard time connecting with Brian. Um, they, they spoke a few times, but Brian was always a little bit reluctant to talk about all the different topics that the author wanted to talk about. I think he was still in pain and, and wanted to try to put it behind him. So Brian and I saw each other um, well after the movie came out. I went back to Springfield to attend a retirement of a couple agents that, that Brian and I worked with. And uh, we saw each other. and We had a great conversation about our families, but we didn't really talk about the book or the movie. You know, it's not a topic I want to bring up with him because I know it makes him feel uncomfortable. So it's, it's, it's sad, but it's understood by me knowing who he is and knowing the attack he came under. Not only him, but his his kids and, and his um, family, his wife. And to us, you know, reputation is everything. A lot of times people believe what they initially read in the paper. Some of those comments were not favorable about the FBI. And and Brian was associated with the FBI there in Decatur, Illinois.
0: Well, in the movie, he's played by Scott Bakula, who, you know, everybody knows, a great actor. And a lot of the stuff that we're talking about just wasn't, there wasn't enough time to cover it in the movie. But I'm surprised that you're saying that that uh, Brian did not talk to uh, Kurt Eichenwald a lot, because I do believe that the the book, which reads like a novel, it's narrative nonfiction, uh, really captured what Brian was going through and the emotions. That's what makes the book so great. I, I, I do have to say this, and I do have a couple of follow-up uh, ending mm-hmm. questions, but the reason I like that book so much is, and we've talked about this, is that it's, it's not just about it's not about the case. He really gets into you, your 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 mindset. You know, um, Mark Whitaker's mindset. All, all the attorneys. I it, it's it's just not a couple of characters. You know, it's everybody right. who had even a little bit of connection, you know, even the supervisors and the SACs and the ASACs and the, you know, the attorneys, he really talked to them and pulled out their inner thoughts about this case. And it, and it shows up on paper in this book. This is the book that inspired me to write my novels. Oh, wow. I, yeah, it really is. And when you saw all the little markings and things that I had in there, it was because those were sections where I really felt that, you know, the author did um such a great job that I marked them. It, it was almost like a, a training manual to be a crime novelist and... There is a there's a saying um, that Joseph Wamba, who is considered the father of police procedurals, because mm-hmm. this is this is like a police procedural.
1: I read and, those books in high school. Yeah. Yes,
0: yeah, I love him. <laughs> yes. And one of, and one of his sayings is that a good crime novel is not about how cops work on cases, but how cases work on cops.
1: Wow, that's very true. Yeah, and, um, and
0: this and this. The informant, you know, a true story by Kirk Eichenwald really, really shows you that skill of of bringing that emotion, you know, um, you know, to a story. So,
1: and I think that um, Kurt was able to piece together the emotions of Brian because he did talk to everybody, and everybody saw it from me to the supervisors, Dean Paisley, Kate Killam. To all the attorneys that I mentioned earlier who worked with Brian and worked with me day in, day out, they saw the toll on, on both of us were able to report that to Kurt. And as I said, uh, Kurt and Brian did sit down for some segments, but it was not as uh, – it happened kind of later on. Kurt wanted it to happen earlier as he was f- starting to form the book. I was in Kansas City already. I'd call Brian to tell him, hey, I just spent the day with Kurt. Here's what we talked about. He really needs to hear from you he needs to hear your perspective because you know you started the case and i'm i'm telling him what happened after i came on board but i think he needs you know both of us brian would say well i'm thinking about it you know i don't know i'm just thinking about it still it's still kind of painful well, i don't know if i want to get into it and, and i tell brian i'd say hey brian he's writing a book with or without you uh uh-huh. you probably want to play a role in shaping you know what's what's happening here But that didn't happen for a while. And so Kurt had to rely upon everybody else on the team to capture everyone's emotions. And then later on, Brian started to work with Kurt on the book. You know, there's a lot that went on in this case. And and the author told me that the book was originally about 1,400 pages. So (laughs) he had to cut out a lot. You know, nothing's perfect. The book's not perfect. The movie's not perfect. But what a real testament to people to try to tell a story. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. Definitely.
0: Is there anything that was in, uh, you know, that was in the book or shown in the movie that definitely did not occur, or that you want to comment about?
1: Oh wow, um, <laughs> there are things left out of the book, but that's just because you know it's just too long. I know in the movie, the movie has a scene towards the end of, of me talking uh, to Mark in prison. Brian's off the case now, or doesn't want to have anything to do with Mark. Mark's already been sentenced. The price fixing case is over, and I'm kind of um, helping Mark with his pardon, um, according to to the movie, and meeting him in prison. And Mark slips out that it may be eleven, 11
0: million. Yeah,
1: eleven million. So
0: that didn't um, happen.
1: No. <laughs> okay. So yeah, the, the the scene in the I never met him in the prison, but let me say this. Mark did keep changing the amount of the fraud and Tony and Mike would tell you that it was always changing even up to right before he went to prison, the amount was ch- changing. So that idea is correct. It kept changing. I think though, the idea of going past nine and a half million was just to create a um, mystery for the audience that there's, you know, two, two and a half million still hidden someplace. Yeah, it worked.
0: Yes, that, it worked. Yeah. That's what I yeah. was thinking.
1: And um, and then secondly, Mark's pardon, you know, I did not work with him on the pardon there in prison, but I will tell you this, uh, a quick story. Several years after the ADM case, I had a case that went to trial in Kansas City of a group of men who were trying to bribe Costa Rican officials, and they had collected $5 million, and they were paying bribes to people down in Costa Rica. That's a violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act, and I had a cooperator making tapes again, and we had several indictments, and people pled guilty, and, but we had one gentleman go to trial. And his defense team, which was uh, made up of a team from from Miami and they did a great job, Um, his defense team tried to call Mark Whitaker to the stand to dirty me up. They had found out I was one of the co case agents of the ADM case and they they found out, you know, they, they learned about all the allegations. They had assumed those were all true. They subpoenaed Mark Whitaker. They went down and spoke with him in prison. And Mark Whitaker told the defense team, that Bob Herndon and Brian Shepard are the two most honest people he's ever met, that they put that he put us through hell, and there's no way he would testify against me. In fact, if he takes a stand, he's going to praise me. I heard about this from my um, assistant United States attorney who was on the case. He told me about this, and I said, really? Mark Whitaker's coming to my defense? Because, you know, we had the trial, and Mark never apologized. He never came out and said all these things to us so directly, and this was maybe five years after the ADM case, and this caused me to contact Mark while Mark was still in prison. And I just thanked him for um, you know telling the truth and just checked to see how he was doing. So we started to communicate while he was in prison. And Mark wrote a book in which he captured some of our um, communications while he was in prison. I was basically just encouraging him to, to live a better life, a truthful life. To put his family and his fitness and um, other things before his his job, but um, during that process, Jerry Mark asked if I would write a letter on his behalf for his pardon. And I was, you know, as a current FBI agent. And that's kind of hard to do as a current agent. But I, I wrote something that the FBI approved that said, "Hey, this is appropriate." And I ran it by our our attorneys, our antitrust attorneys. They said, "Yeah, that that's that's appropriate." But you know who else wrote a letter for Mark? Brian Shepard. Wow. And the former supervisor Dean Paisley. So he, Mark had three of us writing him letters, and a lot of it was based on this idea that that Mark got a consecutive sentence versus a concurrent one. But also, it, it was based on you know the value he he brought to the case, um, the work he did on the case. So Mark wrote wrote a book called Against All Odds, where he captures some of that that happened to him while he was in prison. I will say also that helped with my reconciliation of this. You know to have him tell the defense that I'm not going to testify against Bob, in fact, this is why I would say that helped my process. Brian didn't have that opportunity to to hear that for him because you know it it wasn't his case and he wasn't going to trial
0: but obviously he had some of that because you know he did decide to write the letter
1: right, right, Wow,
0: this is just so fascinating, all right, so. This is, we've talked so much about the case, and I did read your bio at the beginning of both episodes, uh, just so people could know who I'm talking to. But if you could tell us just a little bit about your FBI journey, when you joined the FBI and and why you joined the FBI.
1: Well, I joined the FBI, like many in my, uh, my age group because of Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Mm. I used to watch the FBI on Sunday nights on ABC, and from a very young age, I always wanted to be a federal agent. In junior high, I um, was lucky enough to have a secret uh, service agent that lived two doors down from me. I had him come to my career day, my government class, and I came home telling my mom and dad, I wanna be a secret service agent. Well, my parents were shocked. Um, they did not want their only son to be shot at. So unbeknownst to me, we had an FBI special agent that went to our church. and My dad put me in contact with him. And in high school, he had me come down to the Kansas city FBI office. And I watched films about how to become an FBI special agent and, and what they do at Quantico. Wow. And so from high school on, I was training to become an FBI agent. I purposely got my degree in accounting because we re- Cruder there in the Kansas City office told me, you get an accounting, accounting degree or a law degree, and you're golden. And I worked out, and I worked out, and I thought that I had to pass a CPA test to get into the agency. I didn't know that I just had to take a, a, a much more simple simpler test. But uh, I studied really hard, and I passed all, that, uh, all the CPA exam the first time I took it, which statistically only about 20% do that. But my goal was not to work at a big firm, um, although I I took a job there for two years, about a year and a half, because I had to be 23. You had to be 23 to apply to become an FBI special agent. So I passed the CPA. I'm working at an accounting firm. Um, I'm 23 years old. I apply. I got in and was at Quantico the month after I turned 24 and just loved it. Wow.
0: So one of the, You have one of those uh, always wanted to be an agent stories.
1: Yeah. And work towards it. Yep.
0: Yeah. Unlike mine, where I six months after I learned about the FBI, I ended up at the FBI Academy. How, <laughs> how, how did this happen? <laughs>
1: how that happened?
0: But I, but as you can tell, I love being an agent. So mm-hmm. at the end, it all it all we all ended up in the and we both ended up in the same place. All right. Well, last, yeah. yeah. Last question. Not a last question. Um. Last thing. I always want to give my guests the last word. So what would you like to say?
1: Well, I'd like to say, first of all, thank you. Um, I've taken a lot of time to be with you, but you've taken even more time to prepare and to listen and to ask the questions. So thank you for that. For audience members who might be excited about the FBI, I'd say go to fbi.gov and learn more about, you know, opportunities in the FBI. It's a great job. It's a job. it's not actually a job, it's more of a lifestyle, but it's a career in which you have a chance to make a difference in your um, community, in your city, and maybe even your country. And you work with great people, it's a team effort, challenging, but rewarding. I feel fortunate to work the cases I've worked, and certainly I want your listeners to know that these bigger cases I've been fortunate enough to work on, they're team efforts. And so when I'm saying I, I usually mean us, and I say me, I mean we- I say mine, I mean ours. Uh, It's a truly a team effort. Rarely does one person do it all. And I certainly don't want it to come across like that. This particular case you just heard about, it took a team effort.
0: And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Bob Herndon. You'll find links to Kirk Eckenwald's book, The Informant, and a movie trailer. There's a number of newspaper articles about the case, along with a Discovery Channel documentary where you actually get to meet Bob's co-case agent, Brian Shepard. And there's several photos of Bob Herndon with Matt Damon and the real Mark Whitaker and Joel McHale, who played Bob Herndon in the movie. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. And please don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. At the end of part two of this episode, Bob Herndon spoke about how he became interested in the FBI because of the old FBI Ephraim Zimbalist TV show. So I do want to talk a little bit about the new FBI show on CBS. I've been watching it every week. Part of my social impact responsibilities is to do a reality check on that TV show. And although it's not perfect, I enjoy it. I think it's well done. One of the things that I really enjoy about it is how they're allowing you to see how much the agents care about their cases, the victims, the witnesses, I mean, that is really coming through that they're taking the time to give the characters real personalities. My reviews of each of the episodes is my way of providing an educational reality check for those who want to learn about the real FBI. My reality checks are not criticisms. I like the show and and I believe that it is A powerful promotional tool for the real FBI. I'm excited that a whole new generation is watching and perhaps deciding that they want to become FBI agents when they grow up. But I understand that attempting to create an accurate portrayal of an FBI investigation is an impossible task if the investigation must be solved within less than an hour. Corners are going to have to be cut and creative license must be used to move matters along quickly. I get that. I really do. So what I'm trying to do in my weekly reviews of the episodes is to counteract that CSI effect created sometimes by books, TV shows, and movies about the FBI or law enforcement in general. If you are watching the show or haven't yet, but plan to check it out, I would encourage you to go to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and check out my blog as I point out what the writing team got right, got a little wrong, or took a little bit of creative license. If you want to support this podcast, I hope you consider picking up a copy of one of the books in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series. Pay to Play, and Greedy Givers. The crime fiction series features Special Agent Carrie Wheeler, Temptation, Corruption, and Redemption. The books are available as ebooks and paperbacks at Amazon.com, and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. And stay tuned for more information about when you'll be able to pick up a copy of my first nonfiction book, FBI and Film and Fiction. A Manual for Armchair Detectives, coming soon to all stores where books are sold. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.